This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. My name is Dr Sinead McCann and I am a Public Engagement Officer at the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland, School of History, University College Dublin. For details about the centre, please visit our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash Chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the Centre's iTunes page or our media website, chomi.org. In this episode, recorded on the 28th of September 2017, Associate Professor Mark Cable from UCD reads his paper entitled Patrick Brown, 1720 to 1790, an Irish botanist and physician in the West Indies. The chair for this paper was Associate Professor Catherine Cox, the director of the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland. Okay, um, well, it's great to see everyone again. Um, I hope you had a nice summer. Um, some of you are, are back, some of you are new to the seminar, or like the seminar, so welcome. Um, today we have a colleague, which is lovely. It's always very nice to have a colleague as a speaker, Professor Mark Cable. Um, who I'm sure, obviously you're here because his work is well known to you. Um, Mark's uh, focuses, his research focuses on the cultural history of early modern Ireland um, in the Atlantic context and he has published numerous peer review articles and books on oral and print cultures. Um, so I won't go through them all because we've yeah, been no, here don't till, till Christmas. People have um, dinners together, I appreciate that, yeah. or more to the point, drinks together. Um, Currently, I suppose I'll just talk about what your current work is. You're your lead investigator on the Irish Research Council project Mapping Readers and Readership in Dublin, which is a collab for the 19th century, so you're actually moving forward, which is a collaboration with Marshall's Library, um, as well as colleagues in different uh, colleges here at UCD. So that's a very interesting project, actually, and it'd be interesting to hear some of the results in the future. Um, Mark has also got a sort of different, another career almost as a research in, in terms of research policy and funding at national and international levels. But again, we won't go into that today. We'll move on to your paper for this evening, which looks at the um, the life, I suppose, or certainly the work of Patrick Brown, who an Irish botanist and physician, who and his experiences in the West Indies in the mid 18th century. I yeah, think. the mid 18th yeah. century. Yeah. Yeah. Great, so. yeah. Well, thank you for the very generous introduction, uh, Catherine, and thank you to Fiacre for all your uh, technical advice. Um, I'm not a medical historian, I'm a cultural historian, so I hope you'll, um, you'll bear with me. Um, so Patrick Brown was a significant figure among scholars of botany and tropical medicine in the 18th century. Born in County Mayo around the year 1720, Brown's publication in 1756 of the civil and natural history of Jamaica was important contemporaneously in terms of the development of botanical nomenclature and the discovery of plants previously unknown to European experts. Although his original contribution to the science of botany was recognised by his better known peer, the Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus, Brown has recently been described as, and I quote, a bit of an enigma and is scarcely celebrated in his native land. In fact, Brown was the first English-speaking botanist or Irish-speaking botanist to deploy Linnaeus's binary system of plant classification in a published study. Brown discovered many plants which he could not accommodate within the Linnaean system of classification and described them in terms of new genera. In this paper, I propose to review the career of Brown with particular reference to his writings on the botany of the West Indies. 
Additionally, I want to suggest that Brown is culturally significant, not just because of his Caribbean research. On his return to Ireland in 1770, Brown began work on a study of plants in Galway and Mayo, listing their names in Latin, English and Irish. Brown's experience provides a fascinating case study of a medical doctor raised within an Irish-speaking environment, educated on the continent and working as a physician and botanist in the West Indies. If Brown succeeded in incorporating knowledge of Gaelic botanical terminology within a contemporary global template of such expertise, his achievement is singular in the context of contemporary Gaelic scholarship, which was largely characterised by an insular focus and manuscript dissemination. Now, before proceeding to examine Brown's scientific achievements, it is useful in historiographical terms to situate him within a British Atlantic context in order uh, both to understand better the history of the Irish in the Caribbean and the broader environment in which he worked. Influenced by an emphasis on global historical perspectives, historians are increasingly drawn to the uh, examination of topics which extend beyond the parameters of the nation-state and which are best understood within an international frame of reference. The rise of Atlantic history over recent decades has enabled new readings of intersecting histories. Applied as a framework of analysis to topics as diverse as the history of sexualities, the family and indigenous Americans, the concept of Atlantic history is potentially fluid and elusive given its attention to multiple histories which, unfold, which unfolded within a wide geographical continuum. In the context of the emergence of what historians call the British Atlantic, it has been claimed that English expansion into the Atlantic was inaugurated in Ireland in the 16th century. Certainly, the expansion of English influence and subsequent consolidation of Crown dominion in the New World also provided new opportunities for the Irish. With the exception of Maryland, it is arguable that the Protestant character of English colonies in continental North America rendered them unattractive to early modern Irish Catholic migrants. However, the Caribbean islands, which were less overtly sectarian in foundational character and considerably more economically dynamic, proved attractive as a destination. From the outset, the agency and cultural discernment of Irish merchants active in Amazonia from about 1612 to 1632 are suggestive of the capacity of Irish settlers to adapt to new environments. The success of Irish merchants in the Amazon in the 1620s, centred on trade in tobacco, dyes and hardwoods, was due in no small measure to their knowledge of the river uh, and their expertise in Indian languages. And such was the cultural versatility of the Irish that they were recruited by English and Dutch merchants to manage their enterprises in the Amazon. It has been argued that the Irish ventures in Amazonia are probably the earliest example of autonomous Irish colonial projects in the New World. And until the 1630s, the Irish took advantage of the Amazon as a frontier zone, and they traded with the English or Dutch as different circumstances prevailed. Likewise, from the 1630s, Irish Catholic settlers on Montserrat, which you see up there on the right-hand side, um, in the English Leeward Islands to the right, the extreme right, uh, negotiated a relatively high degree of autonomy within a society dominated by an elite of Irish trading and plantation families served by Irish indentured servants recruited through home networks. In the absence of a formal Irish colonial project, Irish planters on Montserrat and to a lesser extent on St. Kitts uh, ambitiously exploited the financial opportunities available in the Leeward Islands while accommodating their Catholicism to superficial compliance with Anglicanism. However, the story of the Irish in the early modern Caribbean was not exclusively one of successful ad adaptation on the part of an elite of planters and merchants. The development of the plantation system from the mid-17th century was predicated on a ready supply of cheap labour, 
which initially was dependent on indentured servants from Britain and Ireland. Of course, not all servants were voluntary migrants, since many had been banished by the state, especially during the years of the Commonwealth. During the 1650s, it appears that the greater part of the Irish and uh, English servants on, the, on Barbados, uh, which is to the um, extreme right, uh, uh, towards the um, extreme right corner there, uh, it, during the 1650s, it appears that the greater part of the English and Irish servants on Barbados had been transported to the West Indies as political prisoners. Nonetheless, it is clear that Irish Catholics were at this juncture also emerging as an important commercial interest in the West Indies. By the 1670s, the Scots, the English Scots and Irish were portrayed as the masters of Barbados, the, the most important sugar island of the period. An elite of Irish uh, landowners and Montserrat was prominent in the development of tobacco cultivation on the island from the mid-1650s onwards. A census taken of the population of the English Leeward Islands in 1678 likewise reveals the emergence of a relatively wealthy cohort of Irish settlers of Munster origin located in the island of uh, Nevis, St Kitts, Antigua and Montserrat, again part of the, that chain there. So in light of Patrick Brown's experience in the West Indies, it is instructive to consider that recent research by Natalie Zaychek and Jenny Shaw has emphasised a high degree of agency on the part of Irish Catholics within the context of evolving racial and ethnic hierarchies in the early English Caribbean. Therefore, when, for when Patrick Brown first arrived on the island of Antigua in 1737, aged around 17, he entered a frontier world which potentially offered opportunities to an entrepreneurial Irish Catholic. The greater part of the little that is known about Brown's biography de derives from an account of him which was published in January uh, 1793 in, the, in an issue of Anthologia Habernica and authored by an individual who initialed themselves simply R.O. The fourth son of Edward, of Edward Brown, Patrick was born about 1720 to a middling family resident at Woodstock in the vicinity of Clare Morris in southern County Mayo. In receipt of a good education, he was sent to live with a relative in Antigua, where he remained for about a year, but left due to the adverse impact of the climate on his health. Now, the dispatch to the West Indies of a teenager presumably reflected his parents' desire to have him apprenticed either as a merchant or planter. Opportunities for advancement in trade were available at this stage. Although a Navigation Act of 1696 had prohibited the landing of all goods from the American plantations in Ireland, Successful lobbying by West Indian and Irish interests in London resulted in a new act in 1731, which permitted the import to Ireland of a range of goods. Irish exports to the West Indies and the British colonies in North America in the early decades of the 18th century centred on provisions, linen and people. At this period, salted beef, uh, butter, pork and cheese from Ireland were readily consumed in the West Indies. As competition from North American producers grew and as the white population in the West Indies uh, decreased over the course of the 18th century, the export of provisions from Ireland across the Atlantic declined. However, increased levels of exports of salted fish from Ireland to feed slaves in the West Indies uh, compensated for the decline in the general provisions trade. While the remaining balance of exports from Ireland centred on linen, Tom Bartlett has argued that a third category of trade centred on Irish migrants. It has been estimated that about 165,000 people migrated or were transferred from Ireland to the West Indies in British North America between 1630 and 1775. Exports from the colonies to Ireland were dominated by sugar and tobacco, landed first in Britain and then reshipped to Ireland. Direct imports to Ireland included flaxseed from North America for uh, Ulster largely and rum distilled in the West Indies. 
Now, the links of Galway merchants with the West Indies, which dated from as early as the 1630s, probably also informed the decision of Brown's parents to send him to Antigua. Louis Cullen has argued that, and I quote, the Galway interest was easily the largest Irish interest in the West Indies, end of quote. Men from Galway also owned plantations and worked as overseers on British and French islands in the West Indies. While these settlers started families locally, their presence attracted an ongoing influx of relatives from Ireland. Returning to Europe, Brown apparently proceeded directly to Paris, where he regained his health and, with his parents' support, embarked on the study of physic and botany. Limited by penal legislation in terms of professional opportunities at home, and as medicine was the sole profession not subject to a confessional test of entry, Irish Catholic students in relatively large numbers undertook medical studies at European universities. The inadequate nature of medical training in the British Isles for much of the 18th century further encouraged students to travel to the continent in search of a medical education. Toby Barnard has proposed that the necessity to train abroad um, to train abroad broadened the intellectual horizons of Irish medical graduates, which in some measure accounts for their disproportionate contribution to the broader culture of 18th century Ireland. Significantly, after clergymen and lawyers, medical doctors were the most prominent group of book collectors in 18th century Ireland. The 1730s witnessed a peak in the number of Irishmen uh, who graduated with uh, medical degrees from the Continental University. <coughs> Excuse me. The University at Reims was the most popular institution of qualification for Irish medical students, and 554 Irish doctors of medicine graduated from that institution in the 18th century. However, Reims was not an especially distinguished centre of academic medicine. The majority of Irishmen who graduated from Reims had actually previously studied medicine in Paris. In fact, Irish students simply came to Reims to graduate as it was inexpensive and easy. Accordingly, Charles Nelson has suggested that although Brown was awarded the degree of Doctor of Medicine from the University of Reims in December 1742, that he had actually studied at Paris. It is known that Brown matriculated at the University of Leiden in February 1743, but it's not clear if he remained long at Leiden before moving to London, where he practised as a physician at St. Thomas's Hospital. However, Brown returned to the West Indies by 1746, living first in Antigua, and other islands before settling ultimately on Jamaica. Okay, the large island there with Kingston's capital. <coughs> Unlike the Eastern Caribbean, which had a significant Irish demographic presence in the 17th and 18th centuries, Jamaica was essentially an English colony, settled directly from England or other parts of British America. Resident at Kingston, where he worked as a physician, Brown devoted his spare time to the study of botany and the collection of plant specimens for medicinal purposes. The author of the Anthologia Hibernica essay on Brown also claimed that he was a competent astronomer, astro astronomer and mathematician, and no doubt his skills in the latter discipline enabled him to produce a map of Jamaica, which apparently netted him a handsome um, um, profit. Now, by way of supplement to these um, scanty biographical details. It is necessary to turn to Brown's preface to the civil and natural history of Jamaica to envision a sense of his milieu during his time in the Caribbean. The research which informed Brown's study was undertaken in the West Indies during the years 1746 to 1754, when he returned to London to arrange its publication. In his prefatory remarks, Brown noted that while Jamaica attracted talented and learned individuals, the impact of the climate dissipated the energies of what he termed, and I quote, the most determined minds. 
By way of consequence, no credible account of the island had been undertaken, and such publications that had appeared were marred by, and I quote, the evident marks of imbecility, inattention, or erroneous information. However, in contrast, Brown claimed that he was, I quote, happy in a large share of health and strength, inured to the climate, and with a mind strongly disposed to the cultivation of natural knowledge. And mindful of the neglect of Jamaica's history, he had undertaken to provide an account of the past and present state of the island. And his emphasis on health is just a sort of rhetorical device. Uh, Jamaica at this stage was a graveyard for Europeans. Therefore, over the course of a number of years, Brown used his spare time to collect materials for his proposed study. Two areas in particular claimed his attention. <clears throat> as a physician, the diseases pre prevalent in the island were of special interest to him. And secondly, as a naturalist, he was drawn to the study of the island's uh, environment. Brown adduced a further, rather more vague, but strategic motivational factor when he claimed that as a subject of Great Britain and as a member of the island community that he aspired, and I quote, to afford satisfaction to mankind in general. Brown's description of himself as a British subject finds a rhetorical counterpoint in his, lavishly, uh, in his verbally lavish dedication of the volume to George, Prince of Wales. In biographical terms, Brown is fundamentally an elusive figure, and the lack of evidence uh, precludes exploration of his political outlook. However, the latter references seem to suggest that Brown was not without agency within the ecology of English colonial uh, hierarchies. Brown was no less adept in the matter of his scientific self-presentation. Of course, Brown had been disingenuous in his claim that Jamaica's natural history had uh, essentially been neglected. In fact, Brown had been preceded in this respect by a highly distinguished polymath and collector. Hans Sloan, who was born in County Down in 1660, had served as a physician to the governor of Jamaica, the Duke of Albemarle, over a period of 15 months during the years 1687-88. During his time on the island, Sloan recorded details of around 800 new species of plants, which he catalogued in Latin in 1696. Subsequently, Sloan published an account of his experiences in Jamaica in two folio volumes, which appeared in 1707 and 1725, respectively. In making the case for the originality of his work, Brown was obliged to allude to the research of his prestigious predecessor in the field. Acknowledging that Sloan had, had not collected more than 800 species of plants during the, his Caribbean travels, Brown boasted that in Jamaica alone he had studied about 1,200 plants. <coughs> Additionally, he had collected fossils and insects which had not been mentioned by Sir Hans. Now, a newcomer on the English botanical scene, and given that he published the Jamaica study largely at his own expense, Brown must surely have decided that its best prospect of success uh, critically rested on its implicit denigration of Sloan's work. Certainly the evidence of the book's subscription list... <coughs> excuse me. Certainly, the evidence of the book's subscription list indicates that Brown's research elicited attention from contemporary scientists and physicians. Leading London physicians such as William Heberden, Anthony Askew, and Edward Wilmot, as well as the zoologist John Ellis, the natural philosopher Stephen Hales, the botanist Peter Collinson, and the physician naturalist John Fothergill, subscribed in advance to the publication of the History of Jamaica. <coughs> Excuse me. And such engagement on the part of the scholarly community suggests that Brown was skilled in the negotiation of metropolitan scientific networks. Indeed, it is probable that Brown co corresponded widely with scholars in Britain and elsewhere in Europe. For instance, the Dutch physician and naturalist Johannes Albertus Schlosser subscribed to the book's publication and is mentioned in the text by uh, Brown as having provided him with a plant specimen. 
Carl Lenaish, who also subscribed to the history of Jamaica, maintained sustained, though at times uh, infrequent, correspondence with Brown between 1755 and 1771. Brown's letters to Lenaish were largely written in Latin. Lenaish didn't understand English, which uh, says a lot about uh, the scientific uh, stages of English in the 18th century. Brown's considerable intellectual ambition complemented the importance of his subject. While Jamaica was a geographically peripheral uh, colony, you see there, um, its economic importance for Britain was considerable. Brown, as ever, was frank in his appraisal of the economic ties which linked England to its island colony. When he stated that it, I quote, <coughs> continues to supply us with a necessary appendage to our present refined manner of living. And accordingly, he emphasized that the wealth of many, the subsistence of multitudes, the extent of our navigation, the revenues of the crown, and in short, the emolument of the whole nation are deeply interested and augmented by the perpetual intercourse with this distant island. Jamaica had been seized from Spanish control uh, by the English in 1655 as part of Cromwell's Western design, which aimed to destabilize the Spanish Empire in the West Indies in order both to enrich England and to promote, to promote Protestantism at the expense of Catholicism. Although the poor and sparsely populated island of Jamaica hardly seemed an auspicious acquisition at the time, it quickly assumed considerable significance for its strategic location within the maritime center of Spain's empire uh, and for its consolidation of the prestige of the restored English monarchy's colonial aspirations in North America. If the early years of the government-sponsored settlement of Jamaica were uncertain and tentative, the island's fortunes were soon to be transformed by the cultivation of sugar. Introduced in Brazil in the 1640s, sugar quicker, quickly became a popular and lucrative crop across the Caribbean, which could be exported to Europe to satisfy exponential consumer demand for the commodity. The expansion of the trade in slaves, which had been pioneered by the Dutch, complemented and facilitated the rise of sugar as an agricultural commodity. Indeed, English interest in the Caribbean was further encouraged by the profits to be made for the, from the sale of enslaved Africans whose labour was essential to the efficient and cost-effective operation of sugar plantations. So this highly profitable combination of sugar and slavery, which underpinned the economy of the West Indies, meant that the region was considerably more attractive in commercial terms than continental North America, and as such subject to intense rival European ambitions. In fact, the later 17th century witnessed the emergence of the Caribbean, unlike today, as a dynamic locus of imperial consolidation whose economy would be transformative in its impact on the British Isles and on British settlement in continental North America. If by the beginning of the 18th century Jamaica was a, source, a potential source of great wealth for white planters and settlers, it was also a place which instilled fear on account of its high rates of mortality. Life expectancy for whites in Kingston, the island's main urban centre and port, was not encouraging. For instance, it was recorded that between 1722 and 1774, nearly 18,000 funerals occurred in Kingston, as opposed to just under 3,000 baptisms in the same period. Yellow fever and malaria proved lethal to Europeans, as they did in other tropical climates. Moreover, as the general use of inoculation was not, was not adopted in Jamaica until the early 19th century, the arrival of each new ship, slave ship brought with it the threat of a smallpox epidemic. <coughs> when smallpox extended beyond Kingston and Port Royal, the impact was devastating as it spread through the plantations. It has been estimated that during the middle years of the 18th century, uh, that settlers could not expect to survive more than 13 years on the island. Native-born Creoles, um, um, native-born whites, Creoles, 
who were lucky enough to survive childhood were likely to die before they, they uh, reached um, the, the age of 40. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a bad chest at the moment. Yeah, a trip to uh, Kerry over the weekend seems to turn me in. <laughs> Irish damp. <coughs> the Harvard historian Vincent Brown has described Jamaica uh, in the 18th century as a place where death was imminent. Blacks outnumbered Europeans in Jamaica in 1750 by 10 to 1. The violence and brutality inherent to master-slave uh, relations resulted in, in an environment riven by suspicion, uh, aggression and resentment. Slave revolts and conspiracies took place almost once a decade between 1740 and um, 1838. Notwithstanding the impact of adversity, disease and death, Jamaica's sugar industry grew apace during the middle of the 18th century. Over the period 1740 to the mid-1770s, the total number of plantations grew by 45%. In addition to sugar, other crops such as coffee were introduced. Economic development was accompanied by a concomitant rise in the island's population from 4,000 in 1661 to 255,000 in 1788. However, such generic figures mask the malignant dynamic of slavery. Almost 90% of the population was, was enslaved in 1788, and 93% of the inhabitants then were of evident African descent. Therefore, it should be stressed that when Patrick Brown returned to London around 1754 to publish his account of Jamaica, he did so at a time when the island had begun to emerge as the single most profitable British colony. <coughs> Mindful of Brown's agency as an Irish Catholic professional in the context of Jamaica's expansive economy, it is useful to examine the, the treatment of questions of demography and medical botany in his work. As indicated in its title, Brown's study comprises both an account of the civil and natural histories of the island. In chapter one of the, the civil history, he distinguishes between the island's inhabitants on a tripartite basis premised on their parent countries, so English, Irish and Scots. The island's natives are descendants of all three national cohorts. However, displaying a sense of political expediency previously noted, Brown proceeds to disregard ethnic distinct distinctions when he proposes to classify them as, I quote, as one united people, while he subdivides them into planters, settlers, merchants, and dependents. In his broadly positive comments on the planters, he touches in a remarkably frank manner on the shortage of white women of equivalent status to the male planters. As a result, unmarried planters were apt to develop what Brown calls, and I quote, vicious habits, which they seldom fail of acquiring in the more uh, early state of manhood. <coughs> By way of textual discretion in the matter of what is now recognised as widespread European sexual exploitation of enslaved Africans, Brown elaborates on his reference to vicious habits in a footnote where he writes of the planters, and I quote, great attachments to Negro women, there being but few gentlemen, but what have several of those ladies very early in keeping. Which really is a polite way of, of um, um, uh, putting, um, putting across what it was, sort of mass rape. Proceeding uh, less controversially with his comments on the island's inhabitants, European inhabitants, he describes settlers as less financially secure than planters, while merchants, or the trading part of the people, is not at this time so numerous. The fourth class composed um, mechanics, clerks, and servants of all sorts. <coughs> However, the fifth class, which comprised the greater part of the island's population, is considered in remarkably concise detail. 
alluding to those inhabitants he terms Negroes, he simply reports their number around 120,000 people, and as a result of that, of their, and I quote, labours and industry almost alone, the, the colony flourished and its productions are cultivated and manufactured. Brown returns to the question of slavery in subsequent remarks on the lifestyles of his five enumerated classes. As in his previous comments, he is dispassionate, he's dispassionate but arguably not unsympathetic to the slave situation. He observes that for the most part, Negroes are the property of whites, and as such, they could be bought and sold like any other commodity. He describes in detail the conditions in which slaves lived with an account of their accommodation and diet. However, dispassion yields to concern in his remarks on the health of slaves. Considering the harsh conditions in which they labour, and given their exposure to extreme weather conditions and their subsistence of poor quality food, Brown expresses surprise at their relatively good state of health. However, he bemoans what he considers the defective nature of their medical care. Claiming the diseases of the slaves were frequently of a particular kind, he insists on the need for appropriate medical expertise, which he argues should be informed by, and I quote, consummate knowledge of symptoms and disorders to discover the real sources of them, end of quote. Instead, their owners commit them to the care of youths and ignorant practitioners who Brown claims were um, hardly skilled enough to breathe the vein or, or dispense a dose of physic. However, Brown is careful to avoid an accusation of inhumane behaviour on the part of the planters and instead bemoans a generalised lack of medical capacity on the island. In this respect, he says that it was frequently possible to witness gentlemen of the first rank, quote, vomited and blistered to death in a yellow fever and the ladies poisoned with bark in verminous inflammations, end of quote. On the other hand, many were neglected at the early stage of illness so that their worsening condition eventually precluded effective treatment. In an adept blend of diplomacy and candour, Brown provides a relatively blunt account of the slaves' condition, while concurrently seeking to absolve their owners of the charge of intentional cruelty. In terms of his income as a physician, Brown, who returned to the West Indies in 1756, was no doubt dependent on the Caribbean um, elite and accordingly would have hardly sought to confront them in print um, in, um, in, um, excuse me, in, in respect of slavery. It is telling, however, that at the end of his study, Brown provided a classification of the human species which, although racialist, racialist, not racist, employ, implied no differentiation based on assumed racial hierarchies. Under the term homo, Latin for man, Brown enumerated four categories, the Indian, the African, or what he calls the Negro, the American, and the European. In contrast, the Jamaican planter Edward Long, in his 1774 history of the island, infamously characterized um, Africans as simian subhumans and inherently inferior to whites. Moreover, Brown was also dependent on plantation owners' benevolence in terms of access to their estates to study and collect specimens. The presence on the 1756 volume subscription list of important um, <coughs> Jamaican plantation owners such as J Joseph Foster, Barham, Sir Alexander Grant, Rose Fuller and William Beckford and Henry Moore, a leading colonial administrator, is indicative of Brown's social and cultural agility. Although many of the leading magnates in the British West Indies had returned to live in England by the middle of the 18th century, their plantations were administered by a powerful cohort of managers and overseers. Even when in pursuit of scientific knowledge, Brown was obliged to negotiate the social and political complexities of colonial society. Botany and medicine were mutually integrated in Brown's scientific outlook and methodology. In his preface, Brown had promised the inclusion of a third part to his book, consisting of what he termed a few dissertations. 
One such dissertation was intended to focus on the island's diseases, particularly on what he called the yellow and remittent fevers. However, in a note at the end of the book, and the book is quite substantial, Brown says that the large size of the work prevented the inclusion of these dissertations. However, he intended to publish the omitted material with an additional discussion of worm fevers, as a, and I quote, a small, volume, a small volume in octavo to be printed the ensuing season. There is no indication that any such work was published. Indeed, as late as 1771, in a letter to Linnaeus, Brown mentioned his plans to publish a number of medical tracts, including on yellow fever, venereal disease and worm fevers, and on the notorial tropical disease called yaws. However, it is possible to discern how Brown utilised his botanical research with therapeutic objectives in mind. In this regard, comments or observations on the medicinal value or use of plants are, uh, are incorporated in the uh, text. Um, in his entry on the ginger plant, for instance, Brown provides a comprehensive description of its cultivation and use. Conscious of commercial considerations, he notes that while ginger was often planted in sugar colonies, demand for it was uncertain and its price varied accordingly. In fact, he, he expresses regret that what he calls so valuable a, co a commodity was not more regularly cultivated. He proceeds to provide an account of the type of soil best suited to the plant's growth, when and how it should be best planted and subsequently harvested. Providing instructions as to the appropriate preservative treatment of the harvested root, he notes that a syrupy residue of this latter process was, I quote, fermented into a small and pleasant liquor, uh, commonly called cool drink, end of quote. The root of the ginger constituted what he termed a warm, pungent aromatic and was suitable for the, tr the treatment of stomach ailments and what he describes as, um, I quote, viscera proceeding from cold or inertion. <coughs> Moreover, the root was also useful in response to what he termed um, defluxions of the breast or weaknesses of the nerves, whatever they are. Indeed, in suitably prefer prepared form, ginger was beneficial to those working in colder or harsher climates as it enabled such persons to rarefy their chilli juices as well as to promote the tonic action of their contracted fibres. In general, Brown's botanical entries provide a wealth of incidental detail which sheds valuable light on diet and lifestyles in Jamaica. Typically, Brown was attentive to African dietary price practices. In his comments on the sour sop tree, for instance, Brown writes how its succulent fruit was at first much enjoyed by all classes. However, such was his popularity among blacks that it is now hardly ever used among the better sort of people. Brown's interest in the customs and habits of enslaved Africans is illustrative of the diverse and intersecting confluence of cultures which informed New World science and the important contribution, which is now being recognised, of black slaves to the production of knowledge. Indeed, the historical importance of Brown's work in Jamaica arguably, arguably derives from its ethnographic evidence as much uh, as from its significance for the history of science. However, the subject of religion is notably absent from Brown's book. Like his fellow Irish Catholics elsewhere within the Protestant-dominated English colonies in the West Indies, he was surely acutely aware of the need for discretion in matters of faith. <coughs> um, on, his, uh, on the publication of his Jamaican book, um, Brown returned to the West Indies, living first on the Danish island of St. Croix. Written St. Croix, but I'm told it's pronounced St. Croix. And it's one of the Virgin Islands up there on the right-hand side. They're um, U.S. Um, protectorates or territories now. Um, his choice of St. Croix was almost certainly informed by its popularity as a location for Irish Catholic settlement at this period. 
Purchased by the Danish West India and Guinea Company from the French in 1733, the island was ideally suited to the cultivation of sugarcane as a result of its rich and uh, fertile soil. Let's get a map of the island. Um, however, the Danes initially lacked both the experience and capital necessary to develop the island's sugar economy. Consequently, Irish Catholic Creoles experienced in sugar production and in the international trade in sugar were considered useful settlers. Orla Power, um, late of NUIG, but now uh, a training medical doctor at UL, uh, has demonstrated that under the direction of Nicholas Chute of Montserrat, a cohort of Irish settlers purchased plantations on St. Croix and in the process acquired a, a huge degree of, a high degree of influence and status on the island. And Orla Parr did some really interesting research for a um, history PhD in the Danish archives uh, in Copenhagen, which um, has proved um, to shed new light on the um, Irish, um, on the island. Sorry, I'm looking for uh, Nicholas Chute. So Nicholas Chute, he's somebody we need to <coughs> pay attention to. Um, so Orlopar has demonstrated under the direction of Nicholas Chute of Montserrat and originally of Westmeath, a cohort of Irish settlers purchased plantations in St. Croix and in the process acquired a high degree of influence and status on the island. Chute was known to Brown as he is enlisted uh, among the subscribers to the history of Jamaica. Chute's bequest of monies to both the Danish Lutheran and the Irish Catholic churches on St. Croix is suggestive of the cultural and religious malleability of the Irish elite in the West Indies in the 18th century. And again, significantly, a number of Galway families, such as the Balkans, Skerritts and Kerwins, established themselves as planters and traders on the island. St. Croix became a royal colony in, colony in 1754, and in the following year, the Danish monarch recognised the right of Irish Catholics to practise their faith openly, and Irish labourers and artisans were attracted from other islands and from Ireland. The outbreak of the Seven Years' War, 1756-63 between Britain and France greatly disrupted the French trade in sugar due to the superiority of the Royal Navy in the Atlantic. Power has argued that as settlers on a Danish island that the Irish became subjects of the Danish crown and as such they were able to trade as neutrals. Leveraging connections with kinsmen in London and elsewhere, the planter merchants of St. Croix traded in smuggled goods and slaves with neighbouring French islands. When St. Croix was purchased by the Danish in 1733, it no longer came within the remit of French missionaries. Now under the ecclesiastical direction of the Sacred Congregation of Propaganda Fide, two Irish Dominicans were dispatched in 1758 to the island to minister to a mostly Irish population of about 250 Catholics. Over the following decade, eight, Dominic eight Irish Dominicans served in the area. And I mention Dominicans because um, they've, they've left a written record of their time there. One of the first two Dominicans, Father Kennedy, reported in 1760 that 12 plantations in the island were Irish-owned and Irish merchants, traders and ship captains resided in the island's town. Additionally, he stated that about 100 lads of our country were overseers on plantations. The inherently exploitative nature of the European presence in the West Indies is apparent from Kennedy's observations that the settlers sought exclusively to enrich themselves as quickly as possible and to return home with their wealth if they survived. The Irish Dominicans encountered challenges in St. Croix, which are illustrative of the day-to-day -day difficulties of life, which generally faced European settlers such as Brown. <coughs> Intense heat, fear of ill health and sudden death, geographical isolation and constant dread of overwhelming slave rebellions. Following the collapse of his marriage in a scandal, 
uh, uh, Brown moved to Antigua in 1763, where he acquired a sugar plantation called Mount Eagle. The nature of the scandal is 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 uh, is uh, uh, rather elusive, but his wife seems to have been seduced by a Danish planter. His move to Antigua was possibly facilitated by Martin Blake, who owned a plantation in the parish of Parham in Willoughby Bay on the island. Uh, yes, Martin Blake, Esquire, four copies. A member of uh, the Blake family of, of, of Ballyglunan in County uh, Galway, who had first settled in the West Indies in 1720 and converted to Anglicanism, Martin was listed as a subscriber for four copies of the History of Jamaica. In the book itself, Brown named a wild rose, Blakeia, after Martin, and I quote, Martin Blake, Mr. Martin Blake of Antigua, a great promoter of every sort of useful knowledge and a gentleman to whose friendship this work chiefly owes its early appearance. Ironically, Blake had complained in a letter home in 1738, a year after the first arrival of Brown in Antigua, of an influx of importunate and unqualified genteel young Irishmen seeking his assistance. Having sold his estate in Antigua, Brown apparently lived on the island of Montserrat during the years 1760-70. Returning to Ireland in in 1770, it appears that he visited Antigua for the final time in the early 1780s. Brown started work on an Irish flora shortly after his arrival in Dublin in late 1770. Observing and collecting plants in Galway and Mayo, he made detailed descriptions of living plants such as fungi, mosses and ferns. Most of these were observed in their natural settings, but some had been transplanted to his garden at Rushbrook, southwest of Clare Morris. He wrote a first draft of his Irish flora in the winter of 1771. His work in the project was probably sporadic, as the only surviving copy of the Fasciculus plantarum hibernii, extant in manuscript form, is dated 1788. The manuscript flora contains records of plants with their names in English, Irish and Latin. No doubt encouraged by the appearance of a new edition of his Jamaican book in 1789, Brown was anxious to have his Irish flora published. (coughs) In a letter written in 1792 to a Dublin bookseller, William Wilson, Brown asked to have the Irish names of plants printed in italics, noting that he had written them as, um, and I quote, as much to the pronunciation of Irish as I could, but not according to the Irish orthography, which I could not find in any book, end of quote. Now, as Irish was the first language of many of the Munster and Connacht settlers in the West Indies, Indies, it is likely that Brown frequently spoke the language during his time in the region. In the effective effective absence of print in Irish, Brown's knowledge was essentially oral. However, the envisaged publication never appeared in print. Fortuitously, a copy of the Flora manuscript had been acquired by the English botanist and member of the Linnaean Society, Elmer Burke Lambert, from Brown when he visited him in Mayo in 1790, and in due course, it was presented to the uh, Linnaean Archive in London, where it is today. By way of conclusion, I want to suggest that Brown's career as a physician and botanist is significant in uh, two respects. Firstly, as an Irish Catholic operating within a British colonial context, Brown was remarkably successful in his pursuit of a professional and scientific career, given his minority status within a marginal and challenging geographical context far removed from European learner communities and centres of expertise. Furthermore, Brown's assured and strategic use of the metropolitan print trade to disseminate his research enabled and assured both his contemporary and enduring reputation as a pioneering botanist. 
Secondly, his successful use of print as a tool for dissemination and international scientific interchange in the case of his work on the West Indies is neatly counterpointed by the extremely limited manuscript um, circulation of his Irish flora and its consequent absence from the canon of 18th century botanical uh, research until its uh, reappearance a number of years ago, courtesy of um, Mr. de Bourke. And if you have a spare three and a half thousand, um, you might pick up a copy. But the good news is that you can consult it downstairs. There's a copy downstairs in special collections. <coughs> Indeed, his inclusion of Irish botanical names in this unpublished uh, manuscript is in many ways emblematic of the limits of manuscript publication, which was central to Gaelic intellectual and literary activity in the 17th and 18th centuries. Brown's career exemplifies innovation by reason of his adept negotiation of a scientific agenda within an Atlantic context, while his contribution to Irish botany was fundamentally circumscribed by the constraints of tradition in the form of manuscript publication. Thank you very much. Thank you.